0: Let me, of course, encourage you all to keep your Bibles there in Matthew. And as we come to our sermon today, as we begin this new series in the Gospel of Matthew, I'd like to remind or perhaps inform those who are new that every year here at NBC, we take at least one of the four terms to study one of the four Gospels. We think it's an important habit to be in that regularly we are in God's Word, not only in its entirety, but specifically in the stories that pertain to the life of our Lord Jesus. And so year by year we come through one of the Gospels. And this term, it's the Gospel of Matthew. And we'll be particularly focusing this term on Jesus' teaching in the section known as the Beatitudes The Beatitudes are the blessed are the dot 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 sayings found in Matthew 5, part of Jesus' great sermon on the mount where he speaks of different groups of people who will be blessed depending on their spiritual disposition. And we're going to really zero in on those Beatitudes over the coming weeks and give special focus to what Jesus has to say in those teachings. Given that, we won't actually be considering this gospel in its entirety. We won't be engaging too deeply in the remainder of the book. But we did, you may note, utilize Matthew's gospel throughout our Easter services, using it to lead ourselves in the Thursday reflections, as well as our considerations on both Good Friday and Sunday sermons. That said, when we do engage in a new book of the, of the Bible, when we begin a new series, we always like to do a bit of an overview sermon at the outset. And that's what today is. We're going to cover off Matthew's Gospel today in one long sermon. Well, in one sermon that looks quite broadly at the Gospel. And then next week I'll be zeroing in on the Sermon on the Mount and considering the unique attributes of that section of teaching. Following that, we'll focus in even tighter on those Beatitudes. All this so that you know where we're going. That said, let's get our Bibles back out in Matthew's Gospel, and we will be using quite a bit of it this morning. But the first thing that it's important to note about Matthew's Gospel is that it's one of the three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that are known as the Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic is a Greek word meaning same eye, And it's really speaking about the idea that these three Gospels look at Jesus' narrative in the same way. And what it's trying to say is that they use much of the same language, the same stories, and the same historic events. But that word synoptic actually does a little disservice to the Gospels. Because whilst they do share common stories and they look at common ideas, they of course all have their own unique focus. They have the same common goal, if you like, to share the story of Jesus Christ, to promote the good news of salvation and tell what God has done in Jesus. But they do have their own unique angle. You might like to think of the synoptic gospels as the different eyewitness testimony that you might encounter in, say, a court. Three people recalling the same events will not see them exactly the same we would expect nuance and different emphasis depending on who it is that is offering their account so it is with the gospels each shares the same story but they have their own particular view on things part of the reason that they share common stories and indeed common words is that it's likely that matthew and luke utilized what had already been written by Mark. They've taken some of his stories and included them in their own accounts so that they could more fully present what Christ has done. Matthew, it seems, has compiled the collective reflections of the apostles, at least those who were still alive at the time of writing. And then he's added his own personal or unique flavor to the stories. All of this, this writing happened around 40 years or so after Jesus' ministry. As the disciples start dying off and as they lose the capacity to share their memories verbally, they begin to write down what they recall. And so this collective brain trust of eyewitnesses seems to have been filtered down into Matthew's gospel and then he offers his account through his own view. When it comes to who wrote the gospel, there's not actually a lot of debate. Some would argue that Matthew is not the author, but for the longest time, tradition has held that he is indeed its author. You may notice that nowhere in the gospel does he claim to have written it. He doesn't say, I, Matthew, wrote these things. But tradition has long understood that Matthew, or Levi, is the author of this book. In some accounts you'll see him called Matthew, in others he is named Levi, and it seems that this is his Greek and Hebrew name, depending on who you're writing to or thinking about. Matthew was one of the twelve disciples, and his own story is recorded for us in Matthew 9, as well as in Mark's Gospel as well. But in Matthew 9, which you may like to come to, from verse 9, Matthew records his own call to follow Christ. I'm in Matthew 9, reading from verse 9. It says, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. This story of Matthew's call and seeming conversion into Christ follower teaches us a couple of things about the author of this gospel. He was a tax collector before he came to follow Christ. And many of you would know that tax collectors were something among the outcasts of Jewish society. They were Jews who had aligned themselves with Rome and would collect money from their brothers and sisters, their Jewish brothers and sisters, to take it and give it to the Roman government. Oftentimes, these people would take a little extra to line their own pockets. And so tax collectors were despised as thieves and as those who had betrayed their own kind to serve the Roman authorities. As such, tax collectors are often lumped in with the more general term of sinner. To be considered a tax collector and a sinner is something of a slur in the time that this was written. And so Matthew was this tax collector, a sinner, rejected and despised by his fellow Jews. And here in Matthew 9 we see that this outcast is called by Jesus. He's accepted and welcomed in. He's saved and he becomes a disciple. It's little wonder then that Matthew highlights there at the end of that story that Jesus came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And a number of the stories that Matthew sprinkles throughout his gospel will highlight just that, that Jesus came to save the wayward. That he came to call sinners to repentance and to bring them into his kingdom and I think it's partly because of who Matthew was that he emphasizes these stories as he writes it's little wonder then that Matthew's purpose in writing is to convince people that Jesus is the Messiah and that he is the way to salvation but in particular Matthew writes to convince Jews of this. You could, if you like, call Matthew the Jewish gospel. Whereas, say, Luke is written specifically to the Gentiles, Matthew has in his heart the conversion of the Jews to the faith in their Messiah. Now, that's not to say that this book isn't hugely beneficial to non-Jewish people also, which is Great news to us many of whom are not Jewish there is a great insight found in this book as to who Jesus is and what he has accomplished and for those who are familiar with the Old Testament those ancient Jewish scriptures there is also a great encouragement to be found as we read Matthew's gospel we see the cohesive nature of our Bibles How Matthew's story really does pick up where the Old Testament leaves off. And we see that God's story is one and the same. We can see through the pages of Matthew's gospel how God has been at work in the past and how he will continue to work in Jesus and then in those who will follow after. That is, of course, us. Why do I say then that this is a Jewish gospel? Well, there's a couple of reasons. Firstly, at the time of writing, there were great hostilities between those Jews who were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, those Jewish Christians, and Jews who didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Both these groups thought that they had the truth, that they were the true people of God. And so there was conflict between the two. Matthew writes in the hope that those who have not come to faith will join the ranks of those who have, believing that they are in the truth. We also have Matthew's own testimony as a Jewish outcast who has been restored to the people of God. He wants to see that same restoration for all those Jews who are outside God's new covenant. But primarily, it's the content of the gospel that gives away Matthew's purpose. He really sets out to demonstrate that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises. And that Jesus ushers in the presence of God's kingdom. Let me say that again, for this is Matthew's purpose. To show that Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises and the presence of of God's kingdom Matthew highlights this purpose through at least three key ideas firstly he sets out to show that Jesus is the Messiah that he is the king in the line of David he then sets out to show that Jesus is the new and better Moses and that he is the perfection of Israel what Israel was meant to be And finally, or thirdly, he sets out to show that Jesus is the Emmanuel, God with us. And it's those three things that we're going to look at for the remainder of our time this morning. Let's begin with the notion that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. The Messiah was a figure who was long awaited in Jewish history. The Messiah was prophesied as one who would come as king that is in the line of david that he would come and set his people free that he would restore israel to glory that he would be the savior and the shepherd of god's people and so israel waited having returned from exile and finding themselves again under the rule of foreign governments namely rome they were awaiting a messiah who would come And restore the kingdom of God and Matthew is convinced that Jesus is this Messiah so much so that unashamedly he begins his gospel with these words back in Matthew 1 1 this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah the son of David the son of Abraham Matthew sets out at the beginning to prove that Jesus is the Messiah. And in that great lengthy genealogy, which I mercifully didn't make John read, Matthew sets out to prove that Jesus has his own Genesis, his own origin as the Messiah. He traces a great many biblical names, some of the characters who you'll be most familiar with. But primarily he does so to highlight a couple of things. That Jesus is a son of Abraham, that is, he's Jewish. That he is from the line of Judah, as the Messiah was prophesied. That he is a son of David, that is, that he is in the royal bloodline. And in verse 17 of chapter 1, Matthew summarizes these points. He says, Thus there were fourteen generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. He is seeking to prove that Jesus is this Messiah. And having stated this up front, he immediately moves on to the birth narrative. And as John picked up in chapter 2 reading on after Jesus' birth, did you notice that there were a number of comments there made by Matthew? This was done to fulfill what the prophets had said. This was done in accordance with what Jeremiah had proclaimed. A number of times, early in the gospel, and again later as it continues, Matthew highlights that the things in Jesus' life fulfill the promises, the prophecies, the set ways of the Old Testament. Therein, Chapter 2, verse 1. Let's read again just that first few verses. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? Again, that's Messiah language. We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. The star was no doubt established as Jewish law when Daniel spent his time with the Magi. Matthew sets out immediately to again prove that Jesus is this Messiah, not simply by his birth, but by his birthplace also. His birth in Bethlehem aligns with the Old Testament scriptures anticipating the shepherd who would come out of that town. But it's not just the past prophecies that Matthew would have you see point to Jesus as Messiah but also the testimony of those who knew him. In Matthew 16, probably now most familiar words from verse 13, we read of Peter's confession. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the messiah so we have the old testament witness that Jesus is the messiah spoken about in the fulfillment of prophecies we have the eyewitness account that Jesus is the messiah spoken on the lips of his disciples and there Matthew records that it is God himself who has given this knowledge to Peter we have God's own witness that Jesus is the messiah And in verse 20, when Jesus orders his disciples not to speak of this, he does indeed claim for himself the title Messiah. He goes on, of course, to explain that the Messiah's role would not function how the Israelites had anticipated it, that he would not come in as a new political ruler who would free people from Rome, but rather that as a sacrificial atonement, he would make the way for people to be freed not from Rome but from sin and death that he would indeed draw people of all nations into the kingdom of God and it's at that point of his betrayal and death that we see many had come to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah of course it's done in something of a backhanded way but when Pilate holds Jesus up before the people he says what shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah, and they answered, crucify him. Pilate's presentation of Jesus also affirms that many people had come to call him Messiah. So it is that Matthew would have us see that Jesus is this promised Messiah, this king, this savior, this shepherd, who through his death, and resurrection would save not just Jews but all who would believe Jesus is the Messiah Matthew's second point of conviction is that Jesus is the new and better Moses that he is the perfection that Israel was meant to be and for those who have been here recently we've just studied Deuteronomy together so I trust that you're quite familiar with Moses life and ministry Matthew demonstrates that Jesus is a type of Moses, or rather that Moses was a type of Jesus, showing ultimately that Jesus is the new and better version. He begins by highlighting that like the Israelites led by Moses, Jesus too was called out of Egypt. In chapter 2, verse 13, where John read, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, Israel was called out of Egypt, out of slavery. So Christ was brought out of Egypt, out of the threat of death and back into the land of Israel. We also see that Jesus, like Moses, passes through the waters of a river. Moses, of course, passed through the Red Sea with all Israel which is later revealed in our scriptures to be a type of baptism. But Jesus, we know, was baptized by John, the one who came preparing the way. And in Matthew 3.16, we read, As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This audible voice of God has not been heard since the time he spoke on the mountainside to Moses and all Israel. And here he is declaring that Christ is his son. Following this event, many of you would be aware that Jesus is ushered out by the Spirit into the wilderness, where he spends 40 days. In chapter 4, verse 1, it says, The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. That is perhaps the greatest understatement in the Bible, that after 40 days and 40 nights of fasting, Jesus was hungry. But it seeks to highlight the similarities between Jesus' narrative and that of the Old Testament people. Just as they spent 40 years in the wilderness, punishment for their disobedience, so Jesus is tested for 40 days in the wilderness, proof that he is the new and better Israel, for he does not fail his testing. And immediately after this, just as Moses did, Jesus ascends a mountainside and speaks to the gathered people. In chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, verse 1, we read, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. Jesus moves into this great discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, where he teaches at length about how to live as God's people. But in verse 17 of chapter 5, he highlights that he is actually giving law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. is more robust than those people had ever imagined, with examples of murder being likened to hatred and adultery being likened to lust. Jesus, like Moses, gives law from the mountainside. Jesus is the new and better Moses. The ultimate example of this is, of course, the new covenant that Jesus ushers in. The new covenant that at the end of this sermon we'll be remembering together. Represented in this cup and bread. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, Drink from it all of you. This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins just as Moses had brought in God's Covenant to God's people so Jesus ushers in the new and better covenant to God's people Matthew wants you to see that Jesus is the better the new Moses the fulfillment of all that Israel should have been and that is the second point that he highlights throughout his gospel The final for our consideration today is that Jesus is Emmanuel, that he is God with us. The idea of God being with his people is particularly key to the Jewish mindset. They, of course, knew God as he dwelt with them in the tabernacle and later in the temple. They believed that God was with them when they went into battle. But here, Matthew shows us that Jesus is God made flesh, God dwelling with us. Now, I'm going to read just a few passages that highlight this. Matthew 1, verse 18 and following. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save us, save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and he will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. In his birth, Jesus is proved to be God with his people. In Matthew 3, verse verse 1 and following, we read of John the Baptist. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent, For the kingdom of heaven has come near this is he who was spoken of through the prophet isaiah a voice of one calling in the wilderness prepare the way for the lord make straight paths for him john the baptist understood that he was coming to prepare the way for the lord not simply the messiah but god himself and john sees that fulfilled in jesus And when Jesus begins his ministry, he picks up those same words of John saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus claims in such passages to be the king of the kingdom of heaven, a claim at divinity. We see this in other places as well. Perhaps the most famous is in Matthew 9, the story of the healing of a crippled man. In Matthew 9, we read that Jesus stepped into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own town. And some men brought to him a paralyzed man laying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, Take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, This fellow is blaspheming, for they know that only God can forgive sin. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat and go home. Then the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe and they praised God who had given such authority to man. Jesus has the authority to forgive sin something only God alone can do finally the perhaps last eyewitness testimony is that of a centurion in Matthew twenty-seven fifty-four, a centurion who had taken part in the crucifixion of our Lord following his death we read when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened They were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. That is the likeness of God. God himself. Matthew's Gospel is a unique account of Jesus' life. And it's designed to show you that Jesus is the Messiah. It's designed to teach you that Jesus is the fulfillment of all all the Old Testament prophecies that things would be better. He was God in flesh, claims Matthew, the true son of God, the bringer of a new and better covenant written in his blood. Jesus is the one who can save sinners from judgment in his sacrificial death. He's the one who gives hope to all who follow him, Jew and Gentile alike. And as the risen conqueror, who came back from the dead. Jesus is the one who makes the way into the kingdom of heaven. And so Matthew quite fittingly concludes with the only possible response. There at the end of his gospel in Matthew 28, most familiar words, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. This wonderful gospel will form our study for the coming weeks. My encouragement to all of you is to read through it and to familiarize yourself with it, to see God's big story woven from the first pages of Genesis to the conclusion of Revelation. Matthew's gospel will play a crucial part in helping us make those links. Right now, though, I'm going to pray. And as we pray, we will also be asking that God would prepare us to share in communion together. Would you please join with me in prayer? Our Lord and Heavenly Father, as we come together to commence our study of the Gospel of Matthew, we thank you that in your providence, by your Spirit, you guided this man, your disciple, Matthew, to pen this great book. As we embark on our study, we ask, Lord, that you would enable us to see the truths that he presents for us, that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the saviour of all who would believe in him. That he is the new and better Moses, the fulfilment of all Israel. That he is the one who ushers in a new and better covenant. And help us, Lord, to see that Jesus truly is God, that he is the incarnate deity, God made flesh, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, and that through his life, death, and resurrection, we can know you personally. Lord, we pray that as we study this book, you would fill our hearts with joy, that you would engage our minds, and that you would stir us to serve, that we would indeed seek to be those who make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey all you command. Lord, we thank you for the final words of Matthew, that promise that you are always with your people. And so, Lord, as we prepare our hearts to partake in communion, that symbolic reminder of this new and better covenant, we ask that you would prepare us now. Help us to confess our sinfulness Help us to be filled with gratitude, knowing that forgiveness is made readily available to we, your people. Help us to be filled with joy as we remember what Christ has done and look forward to his return. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.